0: No, my hockey my Duncan Greeb, talking My guest today is Bronwyn Backer, who is one half of Kevin and Co, which has become the preeminent uh, producer of comedy in New Zealand uh, TV comedy, and you know, like the, they they they're behind shows like uh, Creamery, which they co-produced with uh, Flat Three. New Zealand today, Guy Montgomery spelling Bee, taskmaster, which actually involved a big risk and a big bet, and and was kind of foundational to the company. But also narratives like Golden Boy and Double Parked, the you know, Chris Parker Alice Sneddon written vehicle, which is uh, coming out any day now if it's not out already. When when this airs, so they they basically have come from a standing start not not particularly long ago to become the, the home of comedy in New Zealand, particularly for that generation of comics that came out of broadly the sort of snort-slash-basement scene and, you know, obviously Rose Matafel was is now a global superstar, but there's a, a whole bunch who've come out of that who who really are um, kind of killing it in, in, in different ways. But the actual origin story of them and Kevin and co in a lot of ways is uh Jono and Ben that's a show that honestly like I didn't particularly love if, I, if I'm honest uh I I it, it was probably too broad for me as a person and I you know I wrote reviews of it uh at the time um that that were kind of indifferent but I think over time, I've come to really appreciate what an extraordinary service it provided and that it, for many, many years, it ran for, for a very long time by, by New Zealand comedy standards. It, it served an audience and it did a job for three, getting local comedy, like original local comedy in front of a, an audience that was ultimately right at the heart of prime time. Uh, but it also provided a training ground for all those comedians so that they could ultimately go on and make their own shows whether that was writing, starring you know, like it, it just, just created opportunities for them which just aren't going to happen without that and and we, I talked with Bronwyn about why, you know, w- which has been a theme on this show like w- where is where is the next John Owen been coming from because w- it does feel like we need something like it Uh, and equally, you know, what what birthed it like what 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 went into to Kevin and co and what they've they've learned along the way. We we talk about all that and about her amazing ambitions to to basically have more complex financing for her projects, which sounds deathly boring, but you know, when you really dig into it, it just means more money coming into this country, more opportunity, and us starting to export even more than we currently do our comedy around the world which is honestly about as noble as an ambition as you could get out of this industry to my mind um, and we begin by talking about something which is really dear to my heart uh the that very special era from kind of the mid 2000s to probably the gfc when new zealand had branch offices of mtv and comedy central and it's you know it was there were great parties in that time, I'm not going to lie, but there was also just this sense that, you know, of, of a really big, vibrant, pluralistic local media scene in a way that, you know, th- that's really been kind of usurped by social media now. Not to say that they're, whether that's good or bad, though, obviously, I kind of think it's bad. But uh, but really, you just, you just had a very different kind of more diverse more more kind of pluralistic uh local media scene than the one right now which is it's just fundamentally a lot smaller a lot more risk averse and probably there are just less opportunities for the next generation of Bronwyn backers to come to come through so we touch on that as well at the start but honestly this is I think a really really fun episode uh it, it captures a whole era and and looks at the, I think, underrated and, and probably less less known role that production companies play in taking talent and ideas from performers and, and writers and turning those into the, the products that we end up consuming and loving on television. So this is Bronwyn Becker from Kevin & Co., with a little cameo from her five-month-old baby, Harry, on The Fold. Benakwe, Bronwyn, and welcome to The Fold.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you having me and Harry, <laughs> my little five-month-old, That's, here
0: uh, with us. Yeah, well, this is, this is, like as we were saying before, this is the the life of a modern working media <laughs> professional. Is a... Uh, it's, it's everything all the time. Um, I wondered, I was w- just before you came up, I remembered when, when we first met, and it was all in a different media era for, for both of us and for this whole industry. And that was when you were working at, and it seems even quaint to imagine it. Like, it's, <laughs> was that a dream that New Zealand <laughs> yeah. had? There were New Zealand officers for MTV and Comedy Central. Like, do you want to just just tell me about what you did there and and what you learned out of that that particular moment in the in the two thousands? Nearly twenty years ago yes. now.
1: <laughs> oh my god! When yeah, I was twenty five when I first started working there. Um. So yeah. So I uh, we always Jay Reeve and I talk about. At the time, we were like, we're gonna look back in these and we're gonna say, these were the days, these were the fun times, this is, you know, we got to party with all the, you know, celebrities and all that kind of thing, and, and he's right. Like, we, we look back now and we go, we're so old and look what we got to do. Um, so I worked there for five years um, and it was an amazing platform for me because I got to really be thrown in the deep end. I started as a production manager and left as a um, supervising producer. And I got to work with MTV New York, Nickelodeon, and Comedy Central. And that's kind of where my love for comedy kind of really blossomed. But um, I was a 25-year-old travelling the world and working for MTV. It was amazing. <laughs> it was crazy. I was there with the Taylor Swift-Kanye moment. We were backstage, watching all the producers kind of manoeuvre that. Um, and, you know, and we just got to be sponges, because we were doing such a small job and such a big cog um and and working with amber peels and jay reeve was just a dream so it was my first kind of i guess first time of kind of show running making it up they didn't really do much local stuff so i got to kind of write the script for what the local show should be and what we should be doing and and really hustle to get ourselves on those red carpets and making the specials and making the half hour shows at rhythm and vines and um we just got to have fun. It was really great.
0: Yeah, so I was working at Real Groove Magazine at the time. We were just down the road, and I remember coming up to, to that office, and it was always a good time. Like yeah, it, it felt time. like <laughs> yeah. that, that. That was that was what I really associate with it, and it it just kind of speaks to it was in retrospect, and we didn't really know it at the time, but it was like the last days of a particular media era where. Those, those big multinational companies had enough money that they could open an office like this. And it felt like, I don't know if this was true, but suddenly it felt like they weren't scrutinizing the books too hard. It was all like, we just have to be everywhere and own young people in a way that bleakly are owned by, by social companies now who have very little presence in the same way in the market. Um, But yeah, I can imagine it being an incredible place to to learn. Like you get a lot of license and not not an excessive amount of oversight, shall we say.
1: And that's exactly it. It was this, you know, we were playing on the main stage, but because we weren't costing a huge amount of money, no one was really paying that much attention until we did a good job. And because we're Kiwis, we did a good job. (laughs) We were such overachievers that our content um, was working for them. And, you know, we did things like the Diary of Dizzy Rascal, I think about that, I'm like, that is wild. <laughs> you know, we spent five days with Dizzy Rascal. Um, and then when he came back and um, we did some work with him and Tiny and Tiny Temper came back as well on John and Ben, we got access to them because of my relationship through MTV. And I, I, it was a really um, a formative moment in my career, I think, because it was a moment where I realised the impact of a brand. Being able to walk into a room and say, you're with MTV, was just a game changer. We got into a party at the Playboy Mansion because we showed our MTV business cards. You know, it was that kind of understanding of, okay, the power of a brand, the power of understanding what that brand means and also showing up and doing a good job and representing what that is. And I think that was a really good learning for me, especially where I then went next to my career with John and Ben, was about how do you establish that brand? How do you make that something that people don't really notice into something big you know um it was great it was amazing <laughs> and there's a lot and a
0: lot of that is about consistency and repetition and knowing exactly what you are and and what you aren't in some respects t- t- let's talk about you know were you there when when they turned the lights off or had you already made <laughs> yeah. that transition across
1: no i was there two shows <laughs> yeah. i feel like yeah. so um mtv yes so we um uh, MTV did this, does this whole, thing, and they're still doing it. They globalize, they localize, they globalize, they localize. And you're absolutely right. They had this office; it was great. We got to do what we wanted, um, and then they they decided to uh, bring that into the Australian office. So, so yeah, so we were all there when we got made redundant, um, and we kind of had this moment of like, you know, and and especially for Jay and Amber, it was a it was a huge deal because they were they were these big MTV presenters and traveling the world, doing these amazing things. Um, it was sad. It was really sad because we were all, but it was an end of an era. It did feel like it was the right time. It was probably the right time for me to move on anyway. <laughs> so I probably would have stayed there for for <laughs> far too long otherwise, because it was so much fun. But yeah, it was um, it was a moment of kind of like okay, um, and it was also a decision. It was a crossroads in my career of um, do I go? You know, do I try and go to New York and work at MTV? And the conversations I had at that time were. I can go there as an intern. That was what was on the yeah. table.
0: So it's a real reset. Or kind of go into the local industry with all that you, you learned and, mm-hmm. and carve a different path. So how, how did you make that traverse? And, and did you seek out John and Ben or was that the sort of the gig that was available?
1: So I did, um, I had worked with Rachel Jean before my time at MTV um, and she when MTV shut their doors, she was a commissioner at TV3 at the time Um, and she and I believe Kelly Martin had a wild idea about, you know they had these two amazing shows on air Um, two talented guys hosting these two shows
0: This was the Jono Project and was it Bill? Ben at the time, it was Ben.
1: so they had these you know, amazingly talented Jono Pryor and Ben Boyce doing these shows that were kind of playing in a similar space but not really doing exactly what the network needed them to do and I believe it was Kelly and Rachel that had the idea of putting them together and Rachel kind of said I know the perfect person to do that and so she she was the one that you know kind of said Bromwyn can run the show she knows what she's doing she can do it and I remember that meeting with her going you know pretty much don't mess it up (laughs) like (laughs) here you go we're taking a punt and you've got six weeks and we want 20 episodes because that's the thing, it was, a,
0: it was a volume play and it was always that way. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think people who maybe don't work in television, I guess you can imagine, but you can't understand just how relentless that, that kind of a schedule is, especially to establish it right out of the gate and it would go on to be more again. But, uh, you know, how much of a baptism of fire was that and, and how, how much of what it would become did you sort of know or, or figure out in that first year?
1: It's really interesting you ask that question because we, we, I feel like we pretty much stayed true to the show that we set out to make in those first six weeks, you know, when we all got into a writer's room and said, what is the show we want to make and what are the influences of shows we were looking at and um, we really felt, you know, we pulled together segments from Hamish and Andy from um, US talk shows that we really liked um, and kind of went, okay, this is the type of thing that we could that we could make. There's no reason the chases, you know that kind of style stuff. Um, and it was that first season that we really got to explore what worked and what didn't work. And it was it was more about kind of us finding our feet, I guess, and finding what the audience was going to respond to. Um, and and finding the roles of John O'Brien and Guy. And I think that that is one thing that I just really feel so grateful for because I feel like it's so hard in today's market. You don't get 20 episodes to get it right. You know, we we took 20 episodes to get it right. It wasn't mid-season two, mid season two we started to rate. And the network giving us that space to actually grow a brand and grow a show, you know, 30 episodes before rating started to happen. That would never happen in this landscape.
0: There's also, you, you were, well, what was the time slot initially? It was, it was like, you know, the idea of, of a show <laughs> being able to, like a, a funded show, that had a, a decent enough resource like enough that you could make it properly happening at 10 o'clock is kind of unimaginable now and and, and it also allowed you to do things comedically because you're in a, in a purely adult time slot how important was that to, to sort of allowing it to be you know a bit more offbeat than potentially what it would, it would ultimately be tasked with doing in the 7.30 slot that it went to
1: it um it was it was it, crucial. The show wouldn't have become what it did had we not had that runway. If we had been put on air at seven thirty straight off the bat or eight o'clock half hour, we would have had one season and we would have been done. Um, and it's a bit like my learnings that I took from MTV. I was able, even though we were only making, you know, gosh, we were making ten minutes of content a week at MTV, and I thought that was stressful. <laughs> you know, go to making half hour and then an hour. Um, but the learnings was the same. It was. Just keep just under the radar. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Harry's decided to contribute to the conversation.
0: I mean, it's it's an important point.
1: <laughs> um, you know, at 10 o'clock, we were just under the radar enough. Like, it was, yes, it was a good amount of money that we were being invested in. Yes, they needed it to work, but it wasn't a 7.30 show. So <laughs> there were not too many eyes on it at first until it started to work. And then all eyes came on it. And then it was like, okay, how do we... Make this a bigger, bolder opportunity. Um. So yeah. So at seven thirty um changed the game for us, but ten o'clock we wouldn't have got their head. Um. we not been given that runway at ten.
0: So in terms of the, you know, like I remember watching a show and you know, like either writing or commissioning reviews that could be, you know, I I look back on them and, go, and I actually like the the you know we we would write some um you know, reviews that, that critiqued it in ways that I don't think were, you know, with hindsight were particularly fair in terms of, you know, looking at what the show was tasked with doing, mm-hmm. you know, in particularly, because it, it had to, right? It had to serve what, especially by, by the time it moved to 7.30, which mm-hmm. was probably the bulk of its era, and it had to, so it had to serve that audience, but then it had this amazing thing that it started to do, which was develop, a whole generation of yeah. comics got to whether they're writing or performing or a mixture of both really learn what it was like to to make television in a it was like the shortened street of comedy is how mm-hmm. i kind of conceive of it this mm-hmm. kind of pressure cooker environment where you've just got no choice but just to pick yourself up and do it again and, and again and again what what was the you know like when you when you look back on that show um, in that sort of prime time era you know what what how, how do you kind of conceive of it and, and particularly that role in terms of the way it shaped that whole generation of, co- of comics in terms of their professional development?
1: Yeah, I think that that was, um, that was our goal. You know, when we moved, when the shift was made to 7.30, we had an opportunity to have more money. You know, we worked really hard, but we were extremely grateful for that and we knew the responsibility that it came with that. And that responsibility was to develop the market and serve the market and grow the industry. And I think you're absolutely right by saying, I've never thought about it like that, but I think you're right by saying it is like the training, you know, Shortland Street has this amazing training ground for drama and comedy had John on Ben. And um, there's nothing like, even now, you know, like I get the opportunity to do it all again next week was so great for every single person involved, whether, whether you're the runner, whether you're the director, whether you're the producer. You know, some weeks we nailed it, others we didn't. But the chance to actually really, you know, that Monday morning meeting where we'd all sit as a team and watch the show and openly talk about it. You know, we would ask the juniors what they thought of the episode, what was funny, what didn't work. Having the writers be able to review their scripts and be like, okay, what ed- edits did the editors make? What... Was the sound mix? How did that influence? How did the music work? Like, all of that content learning approach um, just doesn't happen on a, you know, a show where you get eight half hours and you deliver and it goes to air six months later. It just doesn't. So I think that the the impact of, um, and the responsibility of that was something we took on board quite seriously. Um, And I think it shaped, you know, shows out of that came Funny Girls and Golden Boy. And it shaped, it did shape a lot of people's career, including mine. Like, it made me a better producer. Um, and I'm so grateful to have that because I wouldn't be able to do what I did now do now um, if I didn't have that.
0: And you look at, you know we'll we'll talk about Kevin and Co and and all the shows you've made subsequently shortly, but the 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 scale of that, you can so, see so many of the the genesis of the talent involved, you know uh, links back to that show. before we get there, like, because it feels like that has been replaced in terms of the where, where it sits in terms of that that sort of broad development piece and and obviously these things have to do two jobs but by by a bunch of sort of panel shows or shows like like taskmaster which are similar but not quite the same and and, and kind of crucially different do you think that there is still a space or, or a need for a show that's more like, a next generation Jono and Ben in this era where, where it's, you know, like you just, there just doesn't seem to be uh, quite the same, you know, perfect hothouse development atmosphere that that allows for some kind of narrative skill to be developed as well as the improvisational one?
1: I think um, absolutely there needs to be a show like Jono and Ben, and I think... Um, uh, what that gave the industry and, and we're constantly, um, you know, we're constantly talking to the networks and to NZ on Air about, about this. And every show that we make has some sort of, you know, when we look at it and we go, okay, are we going to try and make the show? Are we going to develop it? What are we going to do here? We look at what the model is in terms of, does it upskill a writer? Does it um, create some improvisational skills? Does it give somebody a chance on the screen? And you're absolutely right. The, you know, we love Taskmaster, but one of the whole reasons of wanting to make that show as Kevin and Co, is because there is a gap in the market and we don't have a training ground like we did. And a show like Taskmaster, you can put a relatively unknown comedian on screen and give them 10 weeks to shine. Um, and that was what we could do with Jono and Ben. We had the you know, the hugely talented Jono and Ben, and you could put anyone with them. And give them a chance to have an hour on television, you know, or a segment. Or because you had that safety net of John and Ben being able to carry the show. Um, Guy Williams is a perfect example. You know, he we're into fourth our fourth season of New Zealand today, off the back of developing it within John and Ben. Um, Funny Girls um was the same. So I do think that there is space in the market, um, for a show like that. Um I don't know who would make it. I don't know what it would look like in today's world, but I definitely think that there is space. Um, and, you know, and I do think there, are, there have been shows that have tried to do a similar thing, I guess, um, including shows we've made, but it hasn't really. We need, that. we need that confidence from a network to sit back and go, we want to do something different, you know? And that's why Alex Horn developed Taskmaster, because he was like, there's so many panel shows that don't work for me. Jon and Ben wasn't a panel show. You
0: know yeah yeah and, and I want to sort of re- return to that because it is in part a product of what is a different and more difficult era for the networks but let's, let's talk about the era I guess it, it sort of came out the back of and potentially in parallel with the, with the end of John o and Ben that is when you set up Kevin and Co what mm-hmm. what prompted you to do that and and what was the intention with it
1: so um so I, I joke. So Cameron obviously is the other half of Kevin and Co. who's also my husband. <laughs> um. So Cam, his background is um kind of more on the business side of you know um. We always joke that I spend all the money and he makes all the money, and <laughs> um, that's how our relationship works in personal and b- professional life. <laughs> um. And so he he was the one that actually was like, well, you're pretty much doing it anyway. Because we had this little silo. We took over the church, um, which is a building at TV3 that was but kind of came the home of comedy, seven days upstairs, John and Ben and Funny Girls and Golden Boy Downstairs um, in New Zealand today. And we, you know, when John and Ben got cancelled, we literally felt like, you know, there were 60 people that had no home anymore. You Did know? you see
0: the cancellation coming, just, just quickly as an aside?
1: I could feel it. And Ben could feel it, and Jonathan could feel it. Like, we had conversations. You know, we always knew that we were on a good thing, you know. Um, but we could definitely feel it. It was the pressure and the money and the landscape had changed, you know. Um,
0: because it had a younger demo than than the likes of Seven Days, which kind of, yeah. you know, anything young, is, is it moves faster. But and
1: interestingly enough, though, sorry to interrupt, but interesting enough, though, um, if, if we had the money to play in that kind of space now... It'd be so interesting. So I remember one. Um, I remember one really amazing moment where we had we had the worst ratings we'd ever received. Like it was it was a dire day. Like it was like gloom and doom in the TV three building because our ratings were terrible. It was just an expensive show. at seven thirty. Blah blah blah. But we did one million on YouTube that day,
0: yeah, and right. I
1: remember sitting in a meeting and the network execs basically just being like, "Doesn't mean anything."
0: It's so interesting, right, because cause I, I remember the, the John O'Brien YouTube channel has been a powerhouse. And yeah. I remember when it shut down, I was like, who owns that? Because <laughs> yeah, that might be yeah. the most valuable asset in yeah. New Zealand television right now. Uh, and, and, you know, if you'd had potentially a, a New Zealand on air, which I think now it would see that. It's
1: exactly right. That's what I mean. And sort of going,
0: actually, this is the perfect poster child for a, a digital yes. transition. Yeah. Um, But again, like, yeah, it's just... Perhaps it was it was just sort of out of time, but but regardless, what happened happened, and you sort of you know you take that that the opportunity of the the end of John and Ben and, and create Kevin and Co. and yeah, so so yeah, what 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 was the intention? And did you see it becoming what it has?
1: Um, I mean, we hoped it would become what it has, and we we you know we still are constantly trying to grow um, that space. And the intention was that we were. I wanted to continue producing comedy. Um, and Cam was like, Well, you're pretty much doing it anyway. We should do our own thing. And so he really took the swing um, and created Kevin and co with myself. Um, but it was really Cam's kind of desire to be like, There is room in the market for us. Um, we had no shows. We had no plan in terms of, we, we had a plan, but we had no, like, nothing to kind of set us up. Um, we we did a thing where we um, paid a huge license fee to be able to pitch taskmaster so you have to pay a format fee um, as a production company to be able to go onto a network and say that you've got the format and you can make the show for them
0: did, did that come in up front or, or or did you record did you was it sort of contingent on you getting the green light kind of thing? no
1: you have to pay the money regardless of whether you get funded or not Oof. so we we took a punt and we backed ourselves and we were like this you know this is um, because we needed something off the ground quickly and we we knew that there was space because John O'Mean had gone and we knew that a show like Taskmaster, it's a huge... Yes, it's a format, but it's huge for development. Like, comedians are selling out Edinburgh shows because they appeared on New Zealand Taskmaster, you know, and the pathways it's created for comedians off the back of doing it is huge and I think it's... Um, You know, I think it's paid off. Um, But yeah, we took a part. We went, you know, we're going to pay thousands and thousands of dollars of our own own, no money (laughs) Um, and try and get a show off the ground that we know we can move quickly on. And I think for us, that was a really um, bold move, but the right move in terms of being able to go, okay, take us seriously. We're in the market to stay Um, and and let's go. You know, Golden Boy we produced with TV3. So that was something that, that had been commissioned. But that became a Kevin and Co project, which was great.
0: And and in terms of you know that that traverse, if, I, if you look at the you know the the book of Kevin and Co, the you you just have such a great relationship with that generation of New Zealand comics, and there is a good mix of the sort of panel, sort of improvisational type show, and and more narrative productions how how important is that relationship with that group of comedians and how have you kind of gone about creating a space where they can come and develop ideas um, you know that that kind of m- m- work in that middle ground between what they want to make and what the the network will buy
1: it's um it's the most important um that showrunner relationship is is the is the business we specialize in because I think showrunner is still a pretty relatively new term in this market. But essentially, I was showrunning John and Ben. You know, I was the gatekeeper between the network and what John and Ben's vision for that show was. Um, and likewise, with every show we make at Kevin and Co. Outside of probably Taskmaster, because we um, we kind of showrun that um, has a showrunner. So every single show we produce has a gatekeeper of that creative. Um, And it's my job to create the right space and to put the team around them to execute their vision. And and my job as a producer is to really realise that. And, you know, all of my learnings through every single show I've ever produced has given me the tools to be able to do that. Um, I think, you know, Raised by Refugees is a really good example of PAC Society having this amazing vision. And I remember just having a conversation with him about what he wanted to do. and, And he's just like, I've got this idea for a show. And he did the kind of, Conversational pitch, and I was just like, well, we must make this, you know." And and that's kind of how our shows double parked with the same was with, with Chris Parker and Alice Ned, and we were all chatting one day, and that kind of idea came out. Um, we actually pitched that for the sitcom, um, for TV three when the, when we got Golden Boy. Um, and we're so grateful that we didn't get it then because. I reckon we would have made such a different show then because we weren't as. We've, we learnt so much more now. So now producing Double Parked, we knew what we were doing. We were far more confident in it um, than a show like Golden Boy. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really crucial um, space for us. And I don't think any other production company. Um, you know, they operate in different ways, but I think we specialise in, in that and that we. The creator absolutely has a seat at the
0: table. But that that the development time is is often something which can be you know feels like it gets pinched, you know, mm-hmm. in between somehow in that kind of triangular relationship between the production company, the the funder and the network. Do you know, do you agree with that diagnosis and or, or like, what, what what is something about the current way the system works, which still, for all that we are living in this digital age, and for all that we've seen, you know, I'm sure that that day of terrible ratings that you described would now be, you know, probably ah, be be a number one twenty five to fifty
1: four. <laughs> yeah, we definitely would have.
0: <laughs> and that's, you know, people could sort of fail to understand the extent to which uh, linear ratings have created, without us having yet quite figured out a way to defend the integrity of shows while making them for a different era and, and audience. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it about the current system which you think that, you know, could be improved upon so that you could take the this generation of comics and and, and honestly the next one, which is probably the one that really yes. desperately deserves the opportunity yeah. and still allow them to basically craft something that, that ultimately... You know, gets closest to fulfilling uh, that their vision in a way that still kind of serves the um, the interests of the other parties involved.
1: Of course, yes. Yeah. So I think um, I think that the way I think to to go back a step to your first point about development, I think um, I think that's a fair comment. Like development always gets pinched, and that that is a um, that is something uh, just about being a small market. I think you know we um, we don't have. You know, Kevin & Co doesn't have an initial backer, so we, um, for our development, we either self-fund it or rely on, you know, funding parties or networks to help out. Um, and, we, you know, we're normally um, very um, particular about what we try and ask for money on versus what we pay for it ourselves and things like that. So I think that's just relation, the relation to the development being short is just because it's a small market and there's not enough money, which uh. is...
0: But, but I mean, I, and, and I hear that, but there's part of me that, Thanks. You know, if you look at the overall budgets involved and the cost of development in terms of versus the cost of a a production, that if you know New Zealand on air or the network were able to kind of shave off a a a bit more and say that this this part really matters Mm -hmm. that that time writing and figuring it out, you get disproportionate reward for it, and yet it still remains this like. You, everything you see is on on the screen rather than in that that period working out. Do you know? Do, do you sort of agree with that that thesis?
1: I do, and it's been something I've had um, lots and lots of conversations with New Zealand on air about. Um, and because comedy is, as you guys know, it's really tricky because um, it's it's really subjective. And so, um, you know, not saying dramas are easy by any means, but um, comedy can you know network notes can be so different Um, readers notes can be so different because you're not just searching for that emotion or you're not just searching for that murder mystery or what have you and comedy also now needs to be hooky you know it needs to be bingeable so I think with comedy out of all of the genres you probably need the most development because it's got to be right and it's far more collaborative like it's not just one person off in a room writing a script by themselves um, you know, like the writing team on something like Creamery versus the writing team on something like Double Parked is is quite different um, because it's comedy. You know, even though Creamery is comedy, it's it's a different style of comedy. So we've just been funded a scripted series with Jono, which is very exciting. Um, and I was speaking to the director David Delatour, who's going to come on board and direct that show. Um, and and we were kind of talking about scheduling and scripts and what, what the process is. And I kind of just said, because I have not worked with him before, um, and I kind of just said to him, look, my, the way that I like to run a show is that the script is crucial. Like, And I think to your point, there's no point rushing production and going and filming this thing, which costs all this money, if the scripts aren't good enough. Um, and I won't go if the scripts aren't good enough. I will beg the network. I will push, you know, and, and we did that on Double Part. So we needed more time because of Alice's schedule and Chris's schedule, and the show is outstanding because the scripts are so strong. Like, it's amazing because Chris and Alice put in that time and I was able to create a space to give them that extra time to, to really work it, and and they've done such a phenomenal job.
0: Is How is the power balance between creators, funders, production companies and, and networks now? I think historically and whether this was accurate or not the the perception was from the networks that it was quote unquote their money they decided what was made and new zealand on air production companies talents ability to sort of shop a project when there were really only two two people buying uh was was very limited and i just wondered, as someone who's operated through the kind of that, that period where there was only TV and there was only the really the two networks to, to this now very different one whether you perceive that the the dynamic has changed and whether that is starting to flow and and impact what is being con- commissioned
1: I think um, I, I don't I fundamentally don't think it's changed I think it's still about relationships and it's still about good content and I think that um, I think ultimately funders networks, Whoever's financing your show, whether it's an international financer or um, locally, they still need to know that you can deliver. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that's. Um, I think that there's a, a lot more players in the market probably now, but at the end of the day, you still have to be able to deliver a show. And I think that that relationship that you've, you know, that I've spent 20 years building, more more than that probably, um, gives gives the funders, regardless if it's local or international the reassurance that I'm going to be able to deliver something on time that's going to serve what they need. Um, and on saying that as well, though, my relationship with the showrunner or the creator, they know, they trust me that I'm going to be able to meet the network's objectives, or the funder's objectives, as well as what they want. You know, so their their vision, um, there'll be compromises, of course there will be. Like, the funders get a say, of course, and that's regardless of whether in New Zealand or internationally. But it's about my job is to manage that and what you know choose our battles. I guess it's kind of like um, raising a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> choose your battles. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So finally, I, I just sort of wanted to, to, you know, we've been spent a lot, a lot of time looking back um, or, or around in this episode, and but I wonder if we could flip that and and look into the future because it f- strikes me that you're almost at a bit of a, you know, you come. Full circle or 180? I don't know which of the, <laughs> which kind of uh, rotation we're on. Where you know the the start of Kevin and Co. is taking a deep breath and a big bet on Taskmaster, and now you've got Spelling Bee, which was uh, a hit by very much by by local standards now, but also has the clear potential to become an exportable format in a way that f- relatively few. Local productions. Do I had Guy Guy Mont whose whose show, you know, whose whose idea it kind of grew out of uh, on this podcast recently, and and who you know he's not shy about admitting that that it does have that kind of level of ambition associated with it. What what is next for Kevin and Co? You know, do you, do you perceive the the company as having the ability to take something like Spelling Bee or, or other shows or formats and start to to kind of move move out uh, more.
1: One hundred percent. That's that's the goal for us. Is we want um, to put New Zealand comedians on the map you know, whether that's inscripted or unscripted and we as a business want to be able to rely on other ways to finance shows. You know, we want we want complex finance plans. <laughs> that's um that's my goal in life. Um no, you I know love that. <laughs> <laughs> um because what that does is it allows us to move into that next tier, allowing other production companies to come in and, and play and have fun you know, and, and learn and grow. Um and if we can be part of that as well and take on some of the small you know, James Must we're doing a show with him at the moment and it's great that we're able to still do those shows, but then we can take something like Gaimont and try and take it to the world. Um, Creamery's been a really great example for us, even though it's a co-pro with Flat3. It's a good example of working with directly with Hulu. Um, there's interest in the format. Um, you know, we're doing, we're actively working in that space. Um, Cam spent some time at MIPCOM last year. Um, he's just been in Australia this week. So we're really trying to focus on the international side of our business. and. Ultimately, what that's going to mean is that we can then fund our development and we can make more shows. So it's kind of, you know, it all goes back into the local market um, the better you do internationally, I think, um, because that's how you have something like, you know, SPP is so successful because they're able to fund development. And that's why they're so great at what they do because they're able to keep the train going and, and keep that short and model, which upskills the industry. It's good for everybody, you know? And I so I think if, if we can get, bigger it's good for us obviously of course (laughs) but it is good for the industry because it means we can actually take those bets you know and we can take a punt on things um which at the moment we we can only take a few bets because you know there's only so much money and you want to spend most of it on screen
0: um well honestly it's it's such an impressive thing that you've accomplished over the last you know five seven years or so and you know i think like it very much. Looks like that, you know, as, as as tall as that order is, that you're well placed to achieve it. So, um, thanks so much for coming on uh, the fold today and, and sharing your story, Roman.
1: No problem. Thank you for having me. I hope that was um helpful and useful, and I hope everyone enjoyed listening to me rant about various things. <laughs> oh, in
0: particular, Harry's contribution. Let's not <laughs> underplay that.
1: Yeah. She's very chatty, like her mum.
0: <laughs> Kia ora, Te Kia Butler here, podcast manager at the Spin-Off